Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. Welcome again to another episode of History is Gay. I'm Lee, as usual, but today, sadly, we do not have Gretchen, but it's okay because I have a fantastic guest host with us today for our episode on Siegfried Sassoon, who was a poet, a writer, and a soldier of Jewish descent known for his anti-Jingoist World War I poetry and for depicting the horrors of the trenches. So today we have an awesome guest named Hayden W. Smith, who is a queer black writer and activist friend of the pod, and he really wanted to talk to us about Bi Erasure and also Siegfried Sassoon. So welcome, Hayden. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. This is fun. This is you get to be our uh you get to be our first like sub in host without Gretchen or me. I know. Like what? Said that I scared Gretchen away, but uh <laughs> <laughs> no. She's just we're we're both busy people and uh scheduling sometimes is difficult between three individuals in a world where we're all like you know, stuck with jobs and capitalism and all those fun things. Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, I totally understand. Slave to <laughs> capitalism as well. Yeah. Know, no choice. <laughs> uh jobs, capitalism, blah. Um, But yeah, so that's who we're going to talk about today. Before we get started into things, uh, just a couple of content warnings. Obviously, we're going to be talking about war. So there's going to be, you know, I mean, just in any sort of reflection on the World War I poetry that was the subject of Siegfried Sassoon and also some of his contemporaries, there will be brief depictions of violence, but we're not going to be like reading out a whole bunch of poems and getting really graphic. But, you know, this is a conversation surrounding like the Great War. So do with that what you will. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it always amazes me that it was called the Great War because they really just thought like, this is it. And now we're like several wars later. It's like, was it really? It's just World War One. Yeah, let's just let's just start a numbering system. Let's yeah. do it. Uh, so yeah, this is going to be also a um, people focused episode. So we'll go through our brief bio, or we'll give some general socio historic context, and then we'll go into a brief bio. We'll talk about why we think they were gay. And as usual, we'll end the podcast with our how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. And uh, and if you listen to our last episode, you know that we have some some fun new merch out on our website. Go ahead, go get yourself some geographic queers gear. You could be an ocean lesbian or a coastal bisexual or a land gay. These are all designed by our lovely friend V Silverman, and they are all beautiful and very comfy. So go get yourself and your loved ones some cool queer shit 
for the holidays. I myself am a coastal bisexual. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> I could never have imagined that may be what you identified as, considering you came into our emails talking, hey, can I talk about bi erasure? Yeah, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Hopefully we'll like expand it too. Cause I mean, myself, I just, I really, really want like a quagmire queer shirt. Uh, oh man, that'd be awesome. I have to convince our designer to draw a swamp, which is apparently very difficult to render in watercolor style. So we'll see about that. But uh, hey, y'all, maybe if, if you, maybe if enough people pressure V that they want a quagmire queer shirt, they'll make it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're just like requesting shirt designs by <laughs> intimidation. <laughs> uh, before we kind of dive into our topics, I kind of wanted to ask Hayden, what brought you to this subject? What brought you to Siegfried Sassoon? And what do you do in your own life and work? If you want to tell people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I took a English class that really, in English class, my apologies. <laughs> see, the professor would kill me, where we focused a lot on war poets, because that was just the professor's thing. And Siegfried Sassoon came up, and we didn't really talk about his sexuality too much. It was kind of like a footnote. But we talked a lot about just, like, the angst behind his writing. And I love, like, really angsty individuals, so I got super <laughs> obsessed with him. Started Googling him, like, reading up about his life. And then he just had this, like, poor little rich boy quality to his whole story where, like, you know, his father was disinherited for marrying his mother. His father came from, like, one of the... We'll get into this later, but, <laughs> you know, it was, it was just... It's kind of a really, like, ridiculously tragic story. And I thought it was really entertaining. And I found your podcast because I always look for gay stuff everywhere. So <laughs> um, my husband and I always joke, like, we, if we can make anything gay, or in, in my case, I always try to make everyone's, like, bisexual. If they hint at anything, I'm like, no, nope, they're bisexual. See? Look, they can't make a decision. They're bisexual. Uh, <laughs> so we're always, like, making Relatable jokes feels. like that. And so, yeah. So I was looking through just queer podcasts. I love history. I'm a history nerd. So I found a podcast called History is Gay. And then I was like, yeah, I just listened a few more episodes and just like I want to be on it I want to talk about stuff <laughs> and here Bio you are Rachel, I experience every day to on some, some level so <laughs> <laughs> we're happy we're happy to have you on thank you so yeah so let's let's dive right in let's talk about Siegfried Sassoon we're gonna start first before we talk about him specifically we're gonna talk a little bit about the climate of what was going on in the United Kingdom in, you know, our early 1900s through 1930s, specifically as it relates to homosexuality. So in the United Kingdom, homosexuality was illegal and homosexual acts were punishable, as we saw in our Oscar Wilde episode, by two years imprisonment or corporal punishment. And this law actually remained in effect all the way up until 1967, which is just insane. Yeah. But while homosexual still can't donate blood, also still can't donate blood. Yeah. yeah, as we've discovered, though, like just because you put a law in place doesn't mean things aren't gonna happen. So while homosexuality was legally criminalized in London, gays were still publicly socializing in coffee shops, tea houses, and pubs. That's right. The gays love their coffee shops. Can't keep <laughs> us away. Yes, we're gonna be at every yield Starbucks, yield fashionable pub. It's, it's great. I'm, I actually was really pleased to read that, like, even though it was like an illegal thing. I think like most things that appeal to people when it's something that it's not a choice, it's like a 
it's how you identify it's who you are mm-hmm. like you can suppress it by law but you can't really suppress the culture that surrounds it and people find ways to congregate whether that's like drinking and people meeting in speakeasies or like <laughs> when people identify with something or they feel that something is part of 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 who they are it's kind of hard for government to come in and make laws to regulate it. Yeah. It fails. Exactly. Yeah, you know, unless they're, like, walking into people's bedrooms, right? So it's like, yeah. even though it's legally criminalized, you can't enter people's homes without a search warrant, so... Or every life- broom closet, every alleyway. <laughs> like, people are gonna kiss in cars and, like, everywhere. You can't you can't be everywhere all the time, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. Spreading and- the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so private life generally remained that way unless there was a formal complaint. Similarly, with private residences, police could only enter commercial venues under specific circumstances, which is what made those public places attractive for queer folk to meet and interact in, right? Like, unless there was a very, very specific tip that somebody got, it was generally safer to meet in public and do these things. However, public spaces were really the primary means of finding and prosecuting men and women for homosexuality or public indecency. So... Right, places like Hyde Park, right? Mm-hmm. And like, what was another place here? Uh, the Meeting Ground? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly, uh, like, these are places that mostly mostly men at the time would meet for sexual liaisons, cruising in the parks. And sex in public parks at this time wasn't limited to men loving men, but rather to youth in general who were rebelling against social norms. Presumably, heterosexual couples were found also having sex in Hyde Park and at higher rates than men with men, but... You know, you also had that as well. Not much has changed. No, no. (laughs) The youth and the gays are still having sex in parks. The youth and the gays (laughs) do love... (laughs) Something about the outdoors. (laughs) Again, we're not advocating, folks. We're just... (laughs) 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 Just going through a bit of history here. Yeah. (laughs) Just comparisons. (laughs) So, So during this time, police became more in tune with the places that queer folk tended to frequent and with the visual signifiers that allowed them to distinguish queer people, particularly men, from the rest of the crowd. At this time, things like painted lips or face powder were in vogue, and so these were things that allowed police to kind of look for, quote, effeminate men and follow them and learn where queer haunts were as well. So the law constrained them to only acting in public spaces like urinals, parks, and streets. Do you want to talk a little bit, Hayden, about Soho, London, where we got got a nice little kind of gayborhood? Yeah, I love these little like gay villages and gayborhoods throughout history. And Soho was one of the early ones in London, near the West End Theater District. Uh, if you can imagine, it it became a hub of queer interaction because there was influence from Greek and Italian immigrants who made it there in the late 19th century. And over time, it kind of became a little less fashionable, less expensive. But that garment increased attention. And throughout the 20th century, it kind of grew for being known for kind of a place for the sex industry to take off and for its nightlife and for queer nightlife. Mm-hmm. By 1914, Soho had become established for um, a section of culture and artistic avant-garde. Um, it kind of became a place where the population grew and there was an influx of like actors marked by sexual and cultural dissidents. Homosexual men began to patronize areas like the Golden Lion Pub on Dean Street and districts that became part of a network of homosexuality adjacent to the theater world of Leicester Square. You know how the gays love theater. Still. <laughs> yes. These things are ingrained in our history, folks. It's queer history to love theater, to meet at pubs and coffee shops, and to have sex in parks, apparently. 
Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the West End in itself was like a cosmopolitan center in the early 20th century, which was a place where people from differing social classes and genders and races intermingled. So queer folks would go less noticed. This was a place where kind of everybody was intermingling. And the art scene added an extra layer of invisibility to those who weren't straight, as queer non-artists could more easily blend in with the bohemian and artistic set, many of whom, like Hayden was saying, were also queer. <laughs> so kind of like San Francisco now, or like New York, where like, yeah, there are a lot of queer people everywhere, and so you can just live in these big cities and you blend. Mm-hmm. Nobody really notices you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody really cares. Yeah. It's only in like smaller cities and towns where like you kind of stick out yeah there's a today the center of london's lgbt lgbt community is on old compton street in soho but even in the 20s and 30s soho had its share of gay bars pubs and meeting houses so you had the golden lion which was a gay bar in the 1920s and it still is as far as we're able to discover there's the wow the cave of the golden calf so named for the golden calf in the book of exodus that the israelites worshipped And it was the notoriously decadent, quote, first recorded gay bar founded in 1912. It's now Gordon Ramsay's restaurant. (laughs) There's the Glassblower, which was established in 1892 and was the epicenter for, quote, dilly boys. uh, So sex workers of all genders who sought refuge, a break and a bite to eat to take a break from the work. Oscar Wilde was a regular here. I'm just going to pipe in here just to say for a second that um, the podcast doesn't endorse this, but I'm going to take... The fact that Gordon Ramsay owns that restaurant to mean that Gordon Ramsay is bisexual. I'm just, I'm just, just take him, just, just take him for there. the team. He's bisexual now. Um, we're claiming him. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, there you go. Uh, Gordon Ramsay's <laughs> welcome, people. Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, you're gonna get a welcome, uh, a gift packet, and it's gonna include lemon bars. That's a Reddit joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, like, I'm a Tumblr gay, so I don't know Reddit jokes, but if you say lemon bars, all right, uh, <laughs> it's a thing. Um, so there was also the admiral duncan established in 1832 and the the neighborhoods of the strand and leicester square were especially important locuses of queer community life in the 20s though with increased policing during that time uh attention eventually shifted to piccadilly circus as the new hub of queer nightlife and community life in soho and i mean with a name like piccadilly circus it's kind of inevitable right exactly Exactly. Wasn't there a section of Piccadilly Service that was like reserved for homosexuals called the Lily Pond? I say reserved with like air quotes because I mean, it sounds like when I first read it, I thought like, oh, that's nice. It was reserved. Then I thought like, oh, no, it was probably like more like segregated homosexuals. Stay in that area (laughs) of Piccadilly Circus. Oh, God. But and the Lily Pond is not like a flattering name either. But (laughs) I don't you know. I mean, it was a little bit. Yeah, like. yeah. Go, go ahead. Go into that. <laughs> so the name refers to the flowers painted on the wall, which sounds great at first, but also it kind of embodied like a sense of belonging because the pond is like a natural home to lilies, um, i.e., homosexual men and women. But I took the whole like lily pond thing to, in, in like a slur sort of way as oh, well. Okay. Like, I Interesting. Thought, like, oh, you lilies. Especially when it's queer men, because we're always compared to like daisies or pansies or, you mm-hmm. know, I, I just thought of it as like, oh, that's where the lilies hang out. Like, you know. But it's also like, you know, the heart of pre-World War II lesbian London, too. So you have, True. I mean, it's a nice, inter- it's an interesting mix of that, like, effeminization of queer men, but also the, like, sapphic flower imagery 
<laughs> oh, it's men loving men and women loving women solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It had a great garden party atmosphere, according to one man. And uh, Ellen, a West End lesbian and dancer, recalls it as a haunt for lesbians as well as being a central location for gay men in the 20s and 30s. So we have a, a quote here from one of our sources, Jennings, that um, I think it would be fun for Hayden to read. Go ahead. Sure. It says... We used to go to the lily pond on the first floor of the Coventry Street corner house at Piccadilly Circus, named because all the boys used to go for afternoon tea on a Sunday, and the girls started to get in. It was well known. It was a sight to come and see London, the lily pond on a Sunday afternoon. We'd all meet there in our Sunday best. The girls were very butch. The butch ones were butch. From there, we'd go back to someone's flat. I like that. Just like the girls were <laughs> very, very butch. butch. Like yeah. just... The butch ones were butch. Very like, just butch. Just so you know. I love it. <laughs> oh, God. Just like after after talking about like butch queen of my heart, Joe Carstairs last episode, I'm, I love, oh. I love, I love. So yeah, so shifting a little bit, talking specifically when we get into World War One and the effects of World War One had on ideas about homosexuality and masculinity was something that. I looked into before recording this episode that I thought was really interesting. So not only was homosexuality at this time against the law, but there were particularly strong social currents that were against male-male relationships that even tied into the nationalism and jingoism that was leading up to World War One. So early 1900s, 1907 to 1909, we have this thing that happened in Germany called the Uhlenberg Affair, which is where members of the German cabinet were publicly tried for homosexual acts, and it was a big spectacle. And that in itself kind of resulted in a sentiment throughout Western Europe that homosexuality and Germanness were linked, which was not good, as you'd imagine, going into World War One. Yeah. Like, even, even and, it, and it persisted throughout the war years. So in 1918, a, uh, a British MP, Noel Pemberton Billing, published an article that alleged that a German prince had a book with the name of almost 50,000 English men and women with, quote, moral and sexual weaknesses. And because of these weaknesses, it made them prime targets for German agents. So he was quoted as saying, incestuous bars were established in Portsmouth and Chatham. In these meeting places, the stamina of British soldiers was undermined. More dangerous still, German agents, under the guise of indecent liaison, could obtain information as to the disposition of the fleet. Wives of men in supreme positions were entangled. In lesbian ecstasy, the most sacred secrets of state were betrayed. The sexual peculiarities of members of the peerage were used as a leverage to open fruitful fields for espionage. A.K.A. homos make great spies, apparently, y'all. Yeah. Like, come on. Let's, I'm, well, I mean, I guess. I mean, most uh, most of us are hiding a secret at some point, so. Let's get all those. Training. Let's get all those bisexuals <laughs> in their invisibility cloaks. Get some, get some espionage People can't going. can see us. It's perfect. <laughs> right? Oh, God. It's like trans day invisibility. It's like those jokes that always go around. Like, now remember, the sisses can see you today, so. <laughs> Continue to be gay, do crimes. Just remember, you you can actually be seen this time. I'm writing a stand-up set that I'm never going to perform because it takes me forever to write sets. But um, <laughs> the first, the opening joke is literally, hi, I'm bisexual, which means half of you won't believe in me. Oh, uh, I love that. Oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> I love it. 
Uh, I'm excited about that. So yeah, so in addition to this whole like homosexuality and Germanness kind of being linked, as we go further into the war and the British army starts experiencing like heavy casualties and the male population in the UK is dwindling, men were encouraged to quote, do their duty and aid in the reproduction of the male population. Like we're knocking them down faster than we can put them back up. Like we're gonna have to put more baby boys into the world. And so like if you're entering into a relationship with another man, like you're not just being doing illegal things. You're unpatriotic. Uh, so there was. Now, wasn't this the war that killed a generation of men? Yeah. Like, like, isn't that the saying? Like, it just wiped out a generation of men throughout Europe. Pretty much. Yeah. The effects of war also really affected the way that masculinity itself was viewed at the time. So trench warfare contributed highly to a reassessment of Edwardian concepts of manliness and masculinity. It brought stark reality and violence and fear to a culture that was like emphasizing heroic ideals. A man named George Moss emphasized that, quote, war constituted an important test of manliness for young men of the Edwardian middle class. The disillusionment expressed by the war did not lead to a rejection of manliness, but to its reconfiguration around themes of pain and sacrifice. So this is this is also the first time we start to see like psychology becoming popular too. And so many men experienced shell shock coming back from the war. And so, you know, it was called shell shock then. We now know it as PTSD. And so ideas of masculinity had to reconcile with these emotional vulnerabilities and sensibilities. And up until this point, men had been kind of indoctrinated and into a lot of different like militaristic training. And there was a lot of emphasis on like public schoolyard games and bonding with your, you know, with your boys and the Boy Scouts and the Boys Brigades were very popular. More than 40% of British adolescents were belonging to some sort of youth organization. And so then you had all of these men coming back from the war who were experiencing extreme fear and emotion and grief and everything that they were kind of taught in terms of what war means to manhood was kind of having to, to change. I don't know. I mean, like, Hayden, you're a dude. What are your thoughts about this? <laughs> oh man, no. Um I I'm I've never been to war, you know. I've never experienced that, but I um have definitely read up on this and I've had friends who've enlisted and stuff and it seems that throughout the course of history the verdict is the same. War is a very traumatizing experience for everyone involved, whether you're on the winning or the losing side, so to speak. Nobody who experiences it seems to be able to come out of it being okay. And and I think that the other thing, the other theme throughout history has been that masculinity is overemphasized, right? That like you were saying, the stoic nature of like being able to endure everything and be militaristic and be very um kind of uh, unemotional about your course through life has been a persistent theme throughout many different cultures. My dad's from Trinidad and like that's one of the very aggressively masculine cultures mm. that there are out there. And um so yeah, I expected him to kind of like come with that, you know, that machoism, that kind of like behavior. And he's cool, we get along great, but I know there are certain things like he's not gonna cry in front of us. He's not gonna moan mm. about certain things. He'll hug you for a certain amount of time before he's like, all right, that's enough. You know? Ah, <laughs> uh, the patriarchy. <laughs> Yeah, and he was he was also in the military, so it's a double mm. like it's a double uh, fist there. You know what I mean? Yeah. When it comes to the impact of like toxic masculinity, <laughs> which is why I think I'm so queer because you know I had to just go in the opposite direction of yeah. what I was raised with. 
Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> but yeah, I think I feel it. I understand it to some degree, man. It's traumatizing. I couldn't imagine being put in a situation where I had to be like super stoic and feel not feel all the time and be like a robot man and then go to war. Well, and this is like <laughs> this is one of the first times really that you know, we had seen that version of masculinity really propagate because before this, right, we had this, like, one of our sources called it muscular Christianity, quote unquote, of the mid 19th century, which was emphasizing qualities like compassion and fairness and altruism. And even in the Victorian era, right, like men were very specifically encouraged to be intellectual and emotional head of the household. Um, yeah. And so we enter the Edwardian period and suddenly we have this giving way to uh, secular and more aggressive ideals. Like you said, stoic endurance was really valuable. Basically, like the forbearance of pain and the suppression of sentiment. This is how we got to, you know, now we talk about like boys don't cry is yeah. this specific period and then training these young men to go to war. And what the First World War specifically taught was that neither military training or public school or youth organizations, any of these kind of things, teaching men, you know, the, the stiff upper lip could quell fear. And fear was a very feminizing aspect at this time for these men that had gone through all of this, these thoughts. And an academic... Uh, named Elaine Showalter, actually posited that, quote, shell shock is a combat-induced masculine version of hysteria, a heretofore feminine psychological affliction. She said that when all signs of physical fear were judged as weakness and where alternatives to combat, pacifism, conscientious objection, desertion, even suicide, were viewed as unmanly, men were silenced and immobilized and forced, like women, to express their conflicts through the body. So we talked a little bit about this when we talked about Claude Cahoon and in 1930s Paris, you know, 1920s, 1930s Paris, right, all these men had come back from the war and they were experiencing shell shock as well as physical disfigurement and having to reconcile this change, this cultural change in masculinity. The last kind of thing I want to talk about with this too is there was a fantastic article that I read by a man named James S. Campbell that specifically talks about the war poets and when I say war poets we're talking about Siegfried Sassoon we're also talking about Wilfred Owen which we'll get into but specifically these men that were queer this author James S. Campbell discusses the relationship they had with essentially being forced into what he calls a feminine role battling the masculinity of war and the feminine nature of Oddly enough, poetry. So I'm going to read a big long quote, and then we're going to dive into a bio. So he writes, Not only were they caught between the irreconcilable conditions of poet and officer, passive and active, but also between the two available figurations of homosexuality. And in this, he's talking about two separate theories. So there's the inversion theory, which we had talked a little bit before in a previous episode, where... It's the idea that, like, gayness was inversion and that you had, like, a feminine psyche and a masculine body or vice versa. Versus another idea called gender separatism, where it was like, hey, gay men are the most masculine of men. They are the paragon of their gender, like, kind of went in this very hyper-masculine direction. Moreover, all three dichotomies are intimately related. The active role is that of the military hero, the killer who takes pride in his violent work. 
There is no direct relation of this attitude in the poetry, because poetry itself is defined as passive, and therefore the proper medium through which to express ethical passivity. Poetry is also artistic, therefore feminine. In Carpenter's definition of the intermediate, as a female psyche in a male body, the attraction to art is a product of feminine nature. By this scheme, then, poetry is related to passivity is related to femininity, a combination that fits rather well with Edwardian preconceptions. On the other hand, military violence is related to activity is related to masculinity. The difficulty occurs when trying to combine these dichotomies within one person. Quote, war poet becomes a logical contradiction. Trench soldiers are forced into passivity, which is to say the feminine role. They are, as presented by the officer poet, powerless but uncomplaining. But the trench poet must throw off this passivity and actively accuse in order to articulate. So that's just some interesting thoughts going into, especially if you go in and read the poetry specifically of Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. And also if you're reading it and you see like, wow, you know, kind of some some of this is kind of misogynistic. Uh, there's some really, really great, really great and interesting scholarship around that and around how it was a lot of like resentment and rejection of feminine passivity and also the ideas of like these women and these mothers at home thinking of their sons as heroes while they're just basically getting blown to bits, which I thought was an important kind of oeuvre to give before we start talking about people individually. You know, I I agree <laughs> with that. And I like, I think to some degree, if I read parts of this, I agree with like poetry being feminine. Cause I think like, that's like, yeah, there, there is something really beautiful about poetry that eliminates this like masculine edge to it. But then I think of like Bukowski and I'm like, yeah. there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing. There is some really ridiculously misogynistic male poetry that I'm like, I know, no, no I can't this. Yeah. This, uh, this article is it's interesting. <laughs> it's, um, it's got some really interesting theories and I, I like it because it specifically looks at Sassoon and Owen from a queer lens, but it also is, like, very reductive. But it's interesting in looking at, like, I mean, there's, you know, that, you know, the stereotypes of, like, queer men being misogynistic and hating women, and it's interesting to look at it from this point of view, specifically in talking about, like, duties to your men and see and coming home and being like revered as a military hero by people who weren't there and certain you know masculine and feminine dichotomies of a whole bunch of things but that's like an entire podcast subject on its own <laughs> so let's uh is it bio time let's yeah, let's get into bio time it. hayden why don't you start us off tell us a little bit about siegfried's early life and him going into the war sure so starting off he has the best name ever siegfried lorraine sassoon how did i not know he was queer like <laughs> siegfried lorraine sassoon was born september 8th 1886 he was as we've been discussing an english poet writer and distinguished veteran of world war one despite his name he had no german ancestry ancestry, so his parents just thought Siegfried was a cool first name. Um, <laughs> I love it. The Sassoons were a very wealthy Baghdadi Jewish merchant family known as the Rothschilds of the East. That's the big banking family throughout Europe. Um, unfortunately, Siegfried's father, Alfred Ezra Sassoon, was disinherited from marrying his mother. So that's that tragic, like, poor little rich boy story I was talking about earlier. Mm. Like, love was everything, except it wasn't, because they had no money. <laughs> except uh, money. But luckily, love was everything, except except until money <laughs> except comes money. into the picture. Whoops. But luckily his dad had pretty good taste because his choice in a bride was Teresa Georgina Thornycroft. And uh, the Thornycroft family are like this prominent family of 
artists, sculptors, and engineers in England. They're like, they built everything. Uh, so <laughs> his parents, unfortunately for him, separated when he was four. And his mother uh, locked herself in the drawing room during his father's weekly visits. Oh, God. And she eventually died in 1895 when Siegfried was only nine. So again, tragedy just keeps striking him. This kind of, I think, really plays into his later writings. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of his misogyny. Maybe he felt like abandoned by his mother in his early life. Well, actually, it was his, uh, it was his father that died in 1895, oh, right? I'm, I'm misreading yeah. this. Yeah, his father <laughs> died in 1895 when Siegfried was only nine. So yeah, never mind. Then all of that uh, positing it was his mother that abandoned him. It's clearly his father. <laughs> Which also maybe is why he has a bad relationship. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> he studied history at Cambridge from 1905 to 1907 and published some of his poems, uh, his poems, sorry, privately. Although his father had been disinherited, Siegfried had enough money to live on without really having to like work any conventional jobs. Um, he published his first commercial success, The Daffodil Murder, in 1913, and he was an avid cricket player. Cricket is is like this weird baseball-esque game throughout Britain and especially, but like Europe and a lot of like other colonies. My dad's from Trinidad. They play it in Trinidad too and they think it's amazing and I think it's really boring <laughs> yeah, to watch. Yeah, every time I've I'm tried to watch cricket confusing. I'm like, okay, it's, yep. I don't understand ball, the concept. There's like 62 the rules. Little thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth it. Um, just a side note, cricket's not worth it. Give it up if you play it. Uh, in fact, <laughs> but back to Sassoon. Um, before the onset of World War One, he criticized the political situation by saying, France was a lady, Russia was a bear, and performing in the country cricket team was much more important than either of them. So oh. that's how much he loved cricket and how much he hated war. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Um, let's moving on to World War One. Did you want to get into that? Yeah, sure. As much as he criticized the political situation, just kind of wanted to stay back and play cricket. He was, you know, still part of this culture that was incredibly patriotic, that was buying into all of these ideals of, hey, we need to go, we need to save the world, we need to do these things, we need to protect our country. So he still joined the British Army, and he was in service August 4th, 1914, which was, ironically enough, the day Britain declared war on Germany. Unlucky draw. Yeah, unlucky draw, (laughs) right? Like, oh, gosh, I'm gonna join the army. Congrats, you're going to war! Um... (laughs) So yeah, he uh, he broke his arm in a riding accident and spent most of 1915 recovering and convalescing. His younger brother died in the war in November that year, and Siegfried was sent to France, where he met uh, Robert Graves, who was also a poet. He was a British classicist and mythological scholar, well known for his book, The White Goddess, and the two of them became really, really close friends. Graves' commitment to gritty realism in his writing impacted Sassoon and his view of poetry. Sassoon soon became enchanted with with the war, and his early romantic bent turned increasingly discordant and raw. He depicted the grim realities of life in the trenches, especially tuned for audiences who had been fed a lot of the the patriotic propaganda. He was unafraid to include details like rotting corpses, mangled bodies, cowardice, suicide, and filth. And his philosophy at the time was no truth unfitting. So he was really, really determined to be like, hey, this is not fun, this is not a game, this is war, and the people I love are dying in gruesome, unnecessary ways that we've never seen before. Still, he was exceptionally brave in his life as a soldier. He single-handedly captured a German trench and scattered 60 soldiers, and he had other feats of what 
what Robert Graves called suicidal feats of bravery. As he continued to like become more disillusioned with the war, he started to do more and more things that would be less self-preservation and his a lot of his troops uh, started calling him Mad Jack. He got recommended for the Victoria Cross, which was the highest award in the British medal system, though he didn't actually get the award. He was, however, awarded the Military Cross in 1915 for bringing back a wounded soldier while under heavy fire. So after 1915, Sassoon's criticism of the war really started to solidify with the death of his good friend David Cuthbert Thomas. So in March of 1916, Thomas was actually shot through the throat, and it was something that really, really affected Sassoon irrevocably. He turned completely against the war for good, and he was so distraught that in 1916, he was actually sent to hospital to convalesce, and he also had a case of gastric fever. He wrote a bunch of poems in his memory, and in 1917, he was set to return to duty, but instead, under encouragement from friends Bertrand Russell and Lady Adeline Morell, who were both pacifists, he wrote a letter to a CO entitled, Finished with the War, A Soldier's Declaration. The letter was forwarded to the press and read out loud in the House of Commons by a sympathetic member of Parliament. And so the letter, which was like a huge act of protest, right, to be sitting here going, no, in the middle of, quote, the Great War was pretty significant. So the letter reads... I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe that the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I am a soldier, convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. I believe that the war upon which I entered as a war of defense and liberation has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I believe that the purposes for which I and my fellow soldiers entered upon this war should have been so clearly stated as to have made it impossible to change them, and that had this been done, the objects which actuated us would now be attainable by negotiation. I have seen and endured the sufferings of the troops, and I can no longer be a party to prolong these sufferings for ends with which I believe to be evil and unjust. I am not protesting against the conduct of the war, but against the political errors and insincerities for which the fighting men are being sacrificed. On behalf of those who are suffering now, I make this protest against the deception which is being practiced upon them. Also, I believe it may help to destroy the callous complacency with which the majority of those at home regard the continuance of agonies which they do not share and which they have not enough imagination to realize. So this letter was strongly worded, and it was, as you can imagine, seen as treasonous by some, right? You know, willful defiance of military authority, or at best, as criticizing the government's motives for the war, calling it a war of aggression and conquest. Rather than being court-martialed, he was sent to Craigloghart War Hospital near Edinburgh, where he was basically treated for neurasthenia, aka shell shock, aka PTSD. Sassoon himself was more just completely disillusioned from the war than actually having shell shock. According to an account in Sassoon's Memoirs of an Infantry Officer, he had thrown his military cross in the River Merseille in an act of catharsis prior to writing this letter. However, the cross was later found in the home of his ex-wife. So, you know, who knows what really yeah. happened there. Either it was really dramatic or he told someone, yeah, I threw my cross in the river, man. I'm done with the war. And really, he's like, I'm not going to throw my cross in the river. So, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, do you, Hayden, 
since you became so enamored of his writing, want to talk to us a little bit about his war poetry? Sure. So from 1917 to 1919, Sassoon basically released a series of collections of war poetry. Um, the first, in 1917, was The Old Huntsman. It established his tone as predominantly angry and satiristic, uh, with poems like Blighters, The One-Legged Man, and They. Counterattack and Other Poems was published in 1918. It contains some of the best uh, examples of his poems, described as harshly realistic laments or satires on those he considered warmongers. This includes poems like Base Details, Does It Matter, and The Glory of Women. In 1919, we get War Poems, which was written mostly while he was convalescing at Craig Lockhart. Public reaction to these collections was fierce and diverse. Some complained he was unpatriotic, while others thought he, uh, his gritty realism was too extreme to be literary. That was a thing that I also read about Sassoon over and over again, and one of the things that played into the diagnosis of Shell Shock was people read his letter and thought, oh, this man obviously is suffering from some sort of mental deficiency. Mm -hmm. he, so, you know, he needs time. Nobody really took him seriously. They thought, there's no way war could be this bad. <laughs> like, yeah, as I'm like literally laying there in a trench next to pieces of my friend. Like, right. This still war the changed public everything. <laughs> and still, because we have this gruesome fascination with horror, right? We, the public, we bought them because we. You were captured by the ambiance of trench warfare and the weary zeitgeist of a seemingly endless war, which I still feel today is relevant. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's a reason why it's still taught. Like, there's a reason why yeah. we still read Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen in classes when we talk about the First World War. At least I did. And like, you yeah, know, er yeah. Eric Marie Remark, right? All quiet on the Western Front. Like, these are the things that finally challenge these hero, these heroic ideals of going to war and fighting the good fight. It's not never good. Yeah, violence is idealized so often that we forget the casualties involved mm -hmm. um it's just like the idea of war becomes so charming to everyone like, yeah we're gonna go win this war we're gonna fight the good fight and then you know you forget that like people have to die for that to happen yeah um <laughs> but not so soon and he was highly critical of officers in command especially what he perceived as patriotic jangoism um meant to inflame the british against their enemies and he also felt like these officers were ignoring the horrors of war a good example of this is his poem the general from counterattack where he says good morning good morning the general said when we met him last week on our way to the line. Now the soldiers he smiled are most of them dead, and now we're cursing his staff for incompetent swine. He's a creepy old card, grunted Harry to Jack, as they slogged up to Arras with rifle and pack. But he did for them both by his plan of attack. So it's an interesting set of lines there. Just the note that the general's like, good morning, good morning. And most of everyone is dead. The line is scarce. I mean, that visual alone, I think, is very stark in my mm -hmm. mind. I can picture a bunch of fallen men kind of huddled together in what used to be a much bigger group and the general just moseying on like it's no big deal. Whoa, we had 15 yesterday. Now we have five. Let's keep going. Yeah. You know, because that's the reality of war sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. And we know from Sassoon's notes uh, that the original line ended with, he murdered them both. 
but his mentors objected to the harsh line. So there are other sets of notes found posthumously that uh, show that many other of Sassoon's poems were toned down. So if we thought that they were gruesome, or the public thought that uh, it was a little too uh, graphic, Sassoon really was going to take it to a much more extreme level. And people around him kind of encouraged him. Some of the pacifists that you mentioned earlier, I read as well, kind of encouraged him to tone down some of his work because they didn't want him to be arrested for treason. Exactly. Yeah. Do you want to get into the post-war years? Yeah, sure. So he dabbled briefly in the labor movement before becoming a literary editor of the Daily Herald in Oxford in 1919. The Daily Herald employed several prominent British writers as reviewers, including E.M. Forster and Charlotte Mew, and he became a patron of musicians like William Walton. He did a lecture tour through the U.S. in the early 1920s and continued to write poetry, including one of his most famous peacetime poems, At the Grave of Henry Vaughan. When he visited the grave of the eponymous Henry Vaughan, a Welsh poet Sassoon greatly admired. Three close friends of his died around this time as well, Edmund Goss, Thomas Hardy, and Frankie Schuster. And in 1928, he published his first prose piece, Memoirs of a Fox Hunting Man, the first of a trio of fictionalized autobiographies. So this and the sequels, Memoirs of an Infantry Officer and Shurston's Progress, became known as the Shurston Trilogy. The first book became an instant classic when it was published. And then continuing on... In his life, in 1933, he married the much younger Hester Gaddy, and he fathered his only child and beloved son, George, by her in 1936. They separated by 1945, and he was kind of, um, he was, oh, what's the word? Uh, a recluse? Yeah. Yeah, he was a recluse. He kind of lived in seclusion at Hastebury in Wiltshire, and he kept in contact with a small circle of friends. He was estranged that's the word i was looking for estranged from Uh, his son george uh by this point too he still like he really really loved him deeply but they really because of him and his wife's separation really didn't get to interact that much so near the end of his life sassoon converted to roman catholicism and he became increasingly interested in the supernatural even joining the ghost club a paranormal research and investigation agency founded in 1862 so yay spiritualism continues who are you gonna uh, call siegfried sassoon (laughs) oh my god yes oh i love it that's fantastic oh man so so in 1951 no it's good that was an absolutely perfect reason (laughs) oh can we get shirts with that who are you gonna call sick read sassoon jeez i mean it makes a lot of sense right like if you've had your whole life having been a legacy surrounding your views of death and destruction in a war like and you're continually grieving the people that you lost it kind of makes sense that you would turn to the supernatural you know yeah houdini's wife conducted seances right every year on his Mm -hmm. birthday every year after he died so i mean it's reasonable uh so in 1951 he was appointed commander of the order of the british empire a chivalry order that recognizes contributions to the arts and sciences and then on september 1st 1967 he died of stomach cancer and it's just it's sad and odd that 1967 is the year that the laws prohibiting homosexuality between two consenting adults were repealed the year of his death So, November 11th, 1985, Sassoon was commemorated posthumously along with 15 other Great War poets on a stone at Westminster Abbey's Poets' Corner. The inscription on the stone was written by a friend and fellow war poet, Wilfred Owen, who died in the war, and reads, My subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. 
So currently 28 different collections of his poems exist. And he wrote an actual trilogy, you know, the, the trilogy of autobiographies of his life, as well as the Schurstrin trilogy. So we have his like fictionized autobiography. And then we have like an actual trilogy of autobiographies, which are called The Old Century, The Wheel of Youth, and Siegfried's Journey. And that's, uh, that's the life of Siegfried Sassoon. Shall we talk about why we think they're gay or bi? Shall we talk about yeah. the loves of Siegfried Sassoon? He had so many affairs with men before he got married. This is one of the reasons I love Siegfried Sassoon. <laughs> A lot of um, other gentlemen in history who may have been queer, there's like scant evidence, right? There's like, oh, he may have like one or two relationships, but nobody really knows if they were friends or not. But like Siegfried Sassoon had boyfriends. He had like a couple of boyfriends. Um, and the most prominent affair he had was with the Honorable Stefan Tennant. And I use the term honorable only because it's part of his title. There was nothing honorable <laughs> about Stefan Tennant. He uh, was a member of the Bright Young Things, also known as the Bright Young People. This is the London uh, socialite group that was just known for their affluence and self-indulgence. Uh, this is during the 1920s, early 1930s. So while, you know, most of the country is not doing so well, they're like, look how fabulously wealthy we are. The 1920s estates, basically. Yeah, yes. Ridiculous. Um, we'll also get into Stephen Tennant is basically just a wannabe Oscar Wilde. You and I talked about this a <laughs> yes. lot and we're like <laughs> laughing at some of his poems. Um, but the, his social clique included uh, renowned photographer Cecil Beaton and the infamous Midford Sisters. Uh, I don't know if you guys know about the Midford Sisters. If not, Look them up. They're uh, they're another whole bag of worms. You guys should do an episode on the Midford Sisters. Oh, I'm they're not excited. queer though. That's the thing. Like it's hard. Uh, I'm sure I, there's I five mean, of them. So there's still has to badass be one ladies. Of them has to be queer. <laughs> there <laughs> yeah, you go. Statistically, <laughs> statistically one. <laughs> I have four siblings. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so. Tennant's father was the first Baron of Glenconnor, which is a Scottish title, um, and his mother was a cousin of Lord Alfred Douglas, so there's an Oscar Wilde tie in there. Alfred Douglas was the lover of Oscar Wilde that famously got him caught. His father was very upset with the whole affair and confronted Oscar Wilde in a pub, left a calling card. That's a whole other thing. But <laughs> Stephen Tennant was 10 years younger than Sassoon. Sassoon described him an exotic, flamboyant creature, and they fell for each other passionately and traipsed all over Europe together. Oddly enough, they frequently traveled with a pet parrot and a nanny, and their relationship lasted for about six years. So it wasn't just like a fleeting thing. There was a yeah, real no. uh, like 1926 to 1932. To 1932, <laughs> they were together. And, you know, it was really interesting because Stefan was not as successful writer. You know, he was known for being this aristocrat, for being a socialite. He had started a novel he never finished throughout his life. But Siegfried Sassoon was published well-published. Mm. He's controversial, mm -hmm. but he had a career out of writing. So in a lot of ways, he was a mentor to Stephen Tennant. You know, he looked up to him in a lot of ways. Not only that they had that huge age difference between the two of them, but that <laughs> it was somebody that he kind of aspired to be like. You know, he wanted to break into the literary world and be taken seriously as a writer. And so it's interesting because, you know, Sassoon describes Tennant as the most enchanting creature he ever met. Their first night together, they drove about 10 miles from a party at Tennant's house to Stonehenge and stayed out until dawn. Which doesn't that just sound like a cute thing like teenagers would do now with their like significant well, let's other go to or even like and yeah, make out. yeah let's just 
let's go to this cool landmark in our town and like hang out together right? and be alone. Like that's something I think no matter what your sexual orientation or identity is, like we all have done that. You, mm-hmm. It's a cliff, it's Stonehenge, you know, yeah. it's Griffith Park Observatory if you're from LA. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know it well. <laughs> I don't know, my Everybody high school girlfriend and I that. never went to Griffith Park Observatory, though. We did make out a you know lot what? all over Pasadena, we did, though. So as queers, it's different for us. We have to have um, secret spaces. We can't really, like, go to the really public spaces and, like, make out. I didn't make out at Griffith Park Observatory with anyone until my husband. Um, and it was like, I was like, we're going to do this in public so everyone can see. Because, like, <laughs> yeah, you're kind of reclaiming some of the, like, missed opportunities, yeah. you know, you like, didn't get this to is have. Mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I was afraid to hold hands with my first boyfriend in public. Aww. You know what I mean? Like, it was one of those things. And, and so it's great to be in a space where now it's like, nope, yeah, we're I'm kissing you, getting out of the car. Uh, my coworkers know I'm, I'm married to a man. Uh, it's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, well, speaking about, like, passionately making out, right? <laughs> so Tenet, Tenet describes Sassoon as often leaving him swooning with happiness. And, uh, like, he, like, wrote in his freaking journal, right? Like, dear diary. And he writes, <laughs> he writes, he put his mouth over mine, crushing it. Some kisses seem to draw the very soul out of one's body. His do mine. I feel all my heart swooning at the touch of his mouth. My soul dies a hundred million deaths when his face is on my face and neck. And, like... I just, I mean, yes, it's really quite beautiful, but all I can think of is just like, God, want to be Oscar Wilde much, Stefan? Like, yeah. I can't take it at its own because I'm just like comparing it to Oscar Wilde I and be f- like, buddy, oh, you're trying so hard. I feel hard. like if we dropped this in a, like, um, turnitin.com or something, it would have like plagiarism, like <laughs> this much percent, right? but I'm like, Oscar Wilde, it'd just be like a rephrased Oscar Wilde poems <laughs> yeah, that it's you like, just piece together. Like, oh, buddy, I love you. <laughs> you're trying so hard. <laughs> Also yeah. so dramatic, the drama of yeah. it all. Swooning with happiness. Okay, right, you guys probably yeah. just Matt. Relax. You you don't yeah. know him that well. Uh well, I mean it developed uh, it, was, it developed into something like really, really deep too. Yeah. He became a really important element in Sassoon's life. And uh, especially when and Tenet became ill um, from tuberculosis in 1930, Sassoon looked after him. Um, he wrote many letters to the doctor advocating for him, helping him uh, to avoid unwanted visitors and sent to a sanatorium, always referring to him as my brother to kind of like mask some of the stigma around mm-hmm. homosexuality at the time. We found some of the letters from Siegfried Sassoon writing to Stephen Tenet's doctor talking about how he was taking care of him, how he really wanted to make sure that they could set up sanatorium-like conditions at home because he really was averse to getting sent to hospital and all of that. So he was really, really devoted to him, taking care of him for years. And so then... Yeah, and then Tennant decides to abruptly end things in 1932. And this is perhaps pseudo-nervous breakdown, so he just maybe needed time for self-care. But Sassoon was reportedly devastated, and he entered a period of depression that spanned three months. So if anyone doubts the validity of their relationship, a three-month depression after being together for that span of time from 26 to 32, I think for me solidifies it. They were in love, and he was just broken. I mean, I've had three-month depressions post-relationships that are like six months long, though, okay? That's true. I mean, it depends on your stage in life. I feel like, look, this is him post-war. Right. Yeah, this is him post-war. So he's experienced the horrors of war. I feel like he's a mature person. He kind of knows a little bit more than Tenet did to, to be that 
upset over losing someone. Um, the fact that it mm-hmm. wasn't Tenet was depressed yeah. for three months after because I would have side eyed that hardcore. But Siegfried was depressed for three months. I'm like, okay, he really took this. He really cared about him because you know the after surviving war and doing all that if you're still depressed for three months after a relationship ends <laughs> and you've survived a war you know yeah. it must mean something to you so yeah Absolutely. i took it very seriously mm-hmm. when i read that and then the historians agree tenet was arguably Sassoon's most impactful same-sex relationship and vice versa it certainly was not Sassoon's first his previous lovers include landscape and architectural figure, painter, draftsman, and illustrator William Park, also known as Gabriel Atkin, actor and composer Ivor Novello, actor and theater director Glenn Byam Shaw, who is also Novello's former lover. So there's like a weird love triangle thing going on. <laughs> Every source I looked into, though, said that like all parties were okay with it. Like nobody oh, was there upset. You go. They were all friends. Uh, Yeah, they were totally early Polly. It even goes a little bit further. Glenn B.M. Shaw marries a stage actress, Angela Begley, uh, in 1929, but he stays friends with Sassoon to like the end of their lives. Mm. Um, And he has, B.M. Shaw has two kids and, you know, remains with his wife until her death. So I also kind of like was positing him as a bi character in this as well, because here Hmm. he is having had this really significant relationship with a man and then marrying and staying with a woman to her death obviously being devoted to that relationship as well. And everyone says, by all accounts, Beamshaw's marriage to Angela Badgley was a happy one. So there was no reason to suspect it was like a, you know, illegitimate thing or like, like she a was beard. a beard or anything yeah. of that nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another relationship that Sassoon had bringing it back that really interested me was with Prince Philip of Hesse because whenever there's royalty involved, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's an interest there. Unfortunately, Philip of Hesse is a, no- a Nazi sympathizer and he's the namesake of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, who's Queen Elizabeth II's husband. So that's weird. There are a lot of Nazi sympathizers in his yep. family, um, which is very unfortunate for him. Uh, biographers note that Philip of Hesse was probably bisexual. I feel like we shouldn't claim him. I want to revoke his card. Uh, he <laughs> well, did hey, marry hey, a, know, like, a woman. History has, history <sighs> yeah, has the goods sides. and the bads. It's and, you know, the it's, goods and the bads. We, we can certainly disavow people, but... But, you know, so there. he's bi, but he can't sit with us. Yeah, there you and, go. Uh, yeah, he's bi, but he can't he, sit with us. He got married and he had four kids to a woman in the end. And that was probably like royal duty. We don't know, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, but he's just, yeah. Writer Beverly Nichols was also one of Sassoon's lovers uh, to be a little bit more lighthearted there. <laughs> <laughs> And historians also posit that Sassoon had a romantic relationship, perhaps, with David Cuthbert Thomas, who we talked about earlier. You mentioned earlier he was devastated at his death. They were studying together at Clare College in Cambridge, and there are poems that he wrote in his memory, speaking clearly of his affection for uh, Thomas. And uh, one example is in the last meeting. He says, I called him once, then listened. Nothing moved. Only my thumping heart beat out of time whispering his name. I groped from room to room. Quite empty, that house. Was that house. It could not hold his human ghost, remembered in love. The strove in vain to be companion still. Like, that is heartbreaking. Yeah. And definitely something I think you write about someone who's a little more than a friend. Yeah, exactly. Um, Do you want to get into Wilfred Owen? Because that's a whole bag of words. I do. 
I do want to get into Wilfred Owen. So this is this is my favorite kind of element of Siegfried Sassoon's relationships. So while he was convalescing at Craig Lockhart in 1917, he met another young soldier and poet named Wilfred Owen, and they began a fast friendship. So Wilfred Owen is another one of the greatly renowned First World War poets. So he was born on March 18th in 1893 in Oswestry, Shropshire, and worked as a tutor at the Berlitz School of Languages in Bordeaux, France, when the war broke out. He eventually enlisted in 1915 at the age of 22, and he became a part of the Manchester Regiment in 1916. We'll talk a little bit more about Wilfred Owen at another point, but he was also queer. He had been known to have relationships with many younger men, uh... Unfortunately, you know, as we talked about in our Oscar Wilde episode, there was a lot of Uranian sentimentality going on. So there, you know, had been an instance where he had a relationship with a 13-year-old boy. Gross. But basically, after some combat at the Somme, he was diagnosed with shell shock and sent to Craig Lockhart where he met Siegfried in the autumn of 1917. So Wilfred Owen enters this hospital and he, at this point, is, like, hero-worshipping Siegfried. Siegfried was already published. He was well-known for his poetry at the time. And so their meeting actually marked the turning point in Owen's own poetic work and career. And he would kind of actually eventually end up even eclipsing Sassoon in recognition as the quintessential poet of the war years. A lot of people have been, you know, a lot of people are very, very familiar with Wilfred Owen's work, and less familiar with Siegfried Sassoon's. And so they actually, <laughs> I loved this, they apparently met when Owen, like, nervously knocked on Sassoon's hospital door, and he had, like, a stack of, like, five of his books, and he was like, can you sign them, please? And then he was also, um, his, uh, Wilfred Owen's, like, as part of his occupational therapy when he was at the hospital, he was editing the hospital's literary journal, The Hydra, and he actually, him knocking on Sassoon's door inspired them ending up to have, ending up having a conversation about the war and Sassoon's poetry and Owen like asked Sassoon to write for the Hydra and he was just very intimidated about everything about Sassoon like he was a published poet and he was real pretty and he was tall there's a, a writer Pat Barker who did a historical novel called Regeneration that was about the meeting and the relationship between the two of them and she wrote his status as a published poet his height his good looks his crisp, aristocratic voice, above all, his reputation for courage, were things that had intimidated Owen. And their relationship would completely change the course of the way that Owen began to write. Uh, Sassoon began mentoring Owen and tutoring him, and so Owen's style shifted from, you know, he, much like Sassoon, started out in a more romantic style. He was mimicking Keats and Shelley, and Sassoon brought that gritty realism in. He convince him to write in a more colloquial, realistic style. And their time together resulted in some of Owen's most famous works, such as Anthem for Doomed Youth and Dulce et Decorum Est. And Dulce et Decorum Est is actually like one of my favorite anti-war poems, which is uh, usually recalled for the final two lines, which is the old lie, Dulce et Decorum Est pro patria mori. It is sweet and fitting to die for your country. So it's the entire, like this entire poem just tearing that idea to shred. 
But so, like, these two poems especially are the clearest indication of Sassoon's influence on Wilfred Owen's writing. There are questions of whether or not Owen and Sassoon had a romantic or sexual relationship while they were at Craig Lockhart. You know, obviously, as we talk about on this show a lot, concrete historical evidence sometimes is absent. But there's, you know, so there's no way to know for sure, but there's a lot to be said about their letters to one another. When Owen was discharged from Craig Lockhart in November 1917, he had some some regimental duties he was being reenlisted for. Sassoon said goodbye to him and gave him a sealed envelope with 10 pounds, which was a lot of money at the time, and the address of one Robert Ross. Yes, Oscar Wilde's lover. All bringing it back to, I swear to God, like yeah. Oscar Wilde is just the mascot of this podcast. Um, Yeah, and well, like- I, I know Robert Ross had like a- unofficial boarding house for queers yeah that was like a thing he so that would make sense that he had given that address like this is where i'll be <laughs> yeah Sassoon and robert graves kind of introduced him to that group of people i think it's like osbert sitwell or something like that as well in owen's letter to Sassoon from november 5th 1917 in response to getting this letter and this goodbye and this goodbye and this sealed envelope he writes And this is the reason why we had to put Wilfred Owen in here, because to me, it becomes clear. Smile the penny. This fact has not intensified my feelings for you by the least, the least, Graham. Know that since mid-September, when you still regarded me as a tiresome little knocker on your door, I held you as Keats and Christ and Elijah and my colonel and father confessor and a menifice four in profile. What's that mathematically? In effect, it is this, that I love you dispassionately, so much, so very much, dear fellow, that the blasting little smile you wear on reading this can't hurt me in the least. If you consider what the above names have severally done for me, you will know what you are doing, and you have fixed my life, however short. You did not like me. I was always a mad comet, but you have fixed me. I spun round you a satellite for a month, but I shall swing out soon, a dark star in the orbit where you will blaze. But, you know, oh. they're just comrades. Just just friends, just right? Just brothers. Just, he's just a fanboy. Just That's brothers it. in arms. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Yeah. I write all my bros letters like that. I'm like, dude, I know, you know, I'm not going to be able to hang out with you for a while because you're going to take that trip. But, you know, I'm just going to be a dark star in your orbit (laughs) where you'll blaze, you know? Uh, I got to be a satellite around you for a month. And... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I love that they, like, they met so shortly and had such a profound effect upon one another. And, uh... Clearly lovers. Yeah. Sassoon uh, <laughs> tried co- tried to convince Owen to stay out of the war. He expressed him- to him the need for a poet to be in France to, quote, tell the truth about the war. And at this point, Sassoon had actually been injured by friendly fire. He was, I think he was, like, like shot in the head by a fellow soldier thinking that he was a German soldier. And so he ended up, like, convalescing again, like, continued... He was basically an invalid at that point. And so he really wanted Owen to pick up the baton. Uh, Sadly, to Sassoon's horror, Owen returned to war in France in July 1918 and was killed on November 4th, which was, sadly, one week before the armistice that would end the war. One week later, if he had survived one week more, he would have survived the war. And it's so sad. And it's so... It's sad and it's it's fitting. Like, 
considering these these men were just continually talking about the utter insanity of war and like you have something like that and apparently when the soldier when you know whoever it was that came to like tell wilfred owen's mother that he had been killed it was like as the bells were like the church bells were going off to signal the end of the war which was huh uh, gosh but yeah, so Sassoon was plagued by survivor's guilt and grief in losing Owen, and he made it his mission to publish his work posthumously in a collection called Poems, which he published in 1920, but it didn't actually like start receiving wide attention until about the 1960s. And Sassoon would later write, W's death was an unhealed wound, and the ache of it has been with me ever since. I wanted him back, not his poems. And, uh, unfortunately, most of Owen's... So, one of the reasons why we can't, like, say some things for sure is because there's just so much of their writing to one another or a lot of Owen's own writing that were, unfortunately, destroyed. Owen's own mother burned a, quote, sack full of his papers, apparently by his own request, and his brother Harold and the Owen estate prevented research into his private life until about the 1970s, so it was very censured. And according to one article I read, like, Sassoon also destroyed many of the letters, and Sassoon had a really complex relationship with his own queerness. So it's, you know, it's really difficult to know the exact nature of the relationship, but Robert Graves was apparently just convinced that they were in love. So that's like, that's enough proof for me. <laughs> as am I. Robert Graves convinced me as well. I think that, re- that uh, I, just to be like a conspiracy theorist, why else would you destroy the letters? What do you have right? to hide? Right? You know? uh- <laughs> yeah, like, come on, guys. Uh, come on. I mean, you called him. But unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, all this loves. I mean, he says clearly, like, "I love you, right, dear fellow." Yeah, well, and and like Owen would sign his letters like "Your dearest W E O," and it's kind of like, come on, guys, like this is this is yeah. this is what's going on. Um, so kind of kind of wrapping up here, takeaways. Like I said, like Sassoon kind of had a conflicted relationship with his queerness. Australian author and poet. Adrian Caesar depicts Sassoon's war writing as, quote, angry, violent, and sadomasochistic. Uh, According to Caesar, Sassoon wanted to die in the war. He proposes that Sassoon was involved in a, quote, vicious circle of anger and guilt over his homosexuality from which the only escape was death. Another article says that he referred to his queerness as his, quote, dark secret. So... It's difficult to say, but there's a, from Sassoon's poem, Peace, it gives us kind of like a little glimpse into that. Says, in my heart, there's cruel war that must be waged in darkness, vile with moans and bleeding bodies maimed. A gnawing hunger drives me wild to be assuaged and bitter lust chuckles within me unashamed. Just really sad. When you think about it in context, huh? Yeah. Now, it's interesting because I think as well, part of this struggle may have been that there wasn't a lot of terminology for anything other than like either you were gay or straight. So mm. if he felt like he was anything in between, there was no language he could have used to express that. And I think that like part of that has to do with a lot of this like anguish. Yeah. That goes back and forth between this like war being waged. Cause other, cause it could, it, it the war could be I'm gay and I can't admit that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. 
Or the war could be there's no sort of label for this right. identity that I feel. Yeah, well, so, and especially as yeah. you've got being this was like social anathema, right? And I mean, records only kind of subtly refer to homosexual relationships during the war. You know, like there are soldiers who specifically talk about how they, even if they wanted to, right? Like there was no sexual contact with anybody in the service, you know, like, hey, mm. I don't want to lose my military career. There's a great article that I read that was just homosexuality in the First World War. And there's a an anonymous soldier who recognized that he was gay during the war and explained at a later date why he didn't act on his feelings, saying, there was no sexual contact with anybody in the services. The simple reason for me was I got promoted from sergeant to corporal. As you're getting promotions, you couldn't take no chances. I had several chances, mind you, with two or three different private soldiers I knew. You can gauge them, but the point is, when you come to look at it, you say to your yourself, well, is it mind over matter? You know, you say to yourself, no, I mustn't. You're jeopardizing your chances because if something happened, you're going to get court-martialed. I mean, to just be like, to know that it was so strictly illegal and you're in the military and you forfeit any sort of military career, you get court-martialed. Like, yeah. you know, even, even, even like E.M. Forster writing at this time, right, is like talking about like, hey, what are we doing here, right? Like it's even if we don't view this as a quote unquote perversion, it's still against social currents at the time. And I know, though, Adrian Caesar had that very pointed view about uh, Sassoon and his writing. Uh, a university lecturer and Sassoon biographer Gene Moorcroft Wilson believes that, that that assessment is a little too black and white of an analysis on Sassoon, right? Mm -hmm. Like she claims Sassoon wanted to write a book about his troubled sexuality, but in 1918, like you were saying, the atmosphere around a man, particularly a soldier, talking about homosexuality in general was just one in which that would not have taken place. And so at the end of Sassoon's life, he just didn't he couldn't compel himself to put that into writing. Mm -hmm. And ironically, we talked about this earlier as well, the law uh, legalizing sex between consenting uh, men, uh, adult men, was repealed in 1967, the year he died. So, I mean, if he only he had lived for another year, he might have been able to put some of his thoughts and feelings down on paper. Mm -hmm. um, and even now, you know, there's a biography authorized by the Sassoon estate that's bedeviled with disagreements over the same issue. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the work on Sassoon's life vacillates between whether he was gay, straight, questioning, bi, uh, whether those were just dalliances to keep comfort um, because of the trauma he experienced after the war. Dr. Morkoff Wilson refuses to be drawn uh, upon Sassoon's sexuality or indeed whether he was homosexuality or bisexual. The only inference she makes was that it was a great problem to him, which is really general and I feel like kind of a coward's way out when you're writing biography on someone like, like well, no, they struggled a lot <laughs> with this challenge. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, I get not wanting to make an objective decision on what their sexuality is. It's always difficult to do that with historical characters or individuals because, you know, we don't know. We weren't there. We didn't experience things through their eyes. We don't know what their feelings were. We just kind of have remnants and we can reconstruct and recreate the scene, mm -hmm. right? Um, we're kind of like forensic investigators to that degree when we're talking about sexuality and queer people. But 
there's also some really clear evidence, right? Like the language Wilfred Owen uses and the language that he and Sassoon mm-hmm. used and the relationships he had with Ivor Novello and other individuals right. that just kind or of- even his, Or even his marriage with Hester Gaddy. Like, you know, he may yeah. have gotten into it a year after his relationship with Stephen Tennant. Which is very much like rebound right. much or but like- But like, I mean, he had like a, a v- kid, their, la- their marriage lasted many years and, you know, it like it ended in separation, but- he never said anything about regretting it. They yeah, left they it being friends. friends. So, I mean, there's, you know, there may be more to it than just like, hey, this is, you know, I'm going to try to go the straight and narrow life. It didn't seem like that was so much of an interest to him. I mean, who knows? You know, he, he became a recluse later it, in life. So who who really knows? It does seem... It does seem a little incongruous to his character, though, in general, to especially so late in life, decide like, well... Two things. So one, I agree with you. It, he did become reckless later in life, so you never know, right? And sometimes we get a little bit older and we're like, eh, I'm just going to take it easy now. And like, I want a kid <laughs> and this is how I would do that. So, and this woman is a nice woman. We get along. She gets me. She may have, you know, been open to him having affairs with men. Uh, who knows, you know? So I think like there could have been an arrangement there. It could have been a, a genuine relationship. We don't know. But I think... His character hope until then is one in which, like, he didn't seem to have issues taking the road less traveled Mm, by. mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't see him just being like, yeah, just why not be married to a woman just for the sake of it? I feel like if he did that, there was some real intent behind it. And whether it was just for procreation or not, I don't know, because he could have also just fathered a child with someone, right, and not married them and spent a whole relationship with them. I'm going to do my duty. (laughs) Yeah, you Replen- know, I mean, there's that. the population but... of men. God. <laughs> yeah, and he only had one kid, too, so it's not like he was that worried about replenishing the yeah. populations. <laughs> so, like, all right, here's that's my 12 sons. That's what makes me feel like... Yeah, that's what makes me feel like that relationship had to be genuine to some degree because, you know, he loved his son very much and kept in in a very good relationship with Hester. So, yeah. yeah. Well, then I guess with that, that kind of leaves us with with our how gay were they? Well, actually, no, before that, uh, we've just got some some pop culture tie-ins. We didn't really have a word of the week this uh, episode. Nothing really popped out at us. So we'll see you again for the next uh, next episode for our word of the week. But... If you want to see some more or read some more about Siegfried Sassoon, there are a couple of things you could check it into. Like I mentioned before, we have the the trilogy of books, Regeneration by Pat Barker, but that was also turned into a film in 1997. Uh, so it's Regeneration, and it stars James Wilby as Siegfried Sassoon and Stuart Bunce as Wilfred Owen. And there's also a play, Not About Heroes, by Stephen MacDonald, which uh, the title is taken from Owen's preface to his poems, This book is not about heroes. English poetry is not yet fit to speak of them. Nor is it about deeds or lands, nor anything about glory, honor, might, majesty, dominion, or power, except war. Above all, I am not concerned with poetry. My subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. The latter half you'll you'll recognize from the stone honoring the Great War poets we mentioned above. And then, now, finally, that comes to our 
how gay were they ratings so uh so is this on a scale of one to ten or how does so this yeah work? we generally will do it on a so on a scale of one to ten but we frequently break our own rating scale so you do what feels right all right well do you want to go first or do you want me to go first how do you want uh, to do this? let's uh let's have you go first hayden how do you okay. unless you feel unless you want me to go first um no, you know, you go first because then I'll be able to like, I, I'll be able to gauge whether I'm being too extreme or not, you <laughs> okay. know, like I'll get okay. a good idea. All right, let's see. So let's see. Let's thinking about Siegfried Sassoon. Um, I mean, I would say I would probably give him like an eight out of 10 stomped upon flags. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to say like, because I mean, you, you read a like, it's it's very very obvious uh, with his relationship with Stephen Tennant. You know we can't know things for sure with Wilfred Owen, but the language is there, and the and how much he was devastated by his death, I thought was really touching. And if anything, just seeing that kind of vulnerability and love between men in nineteen you know seventeen nineteen eighteen is pretty remarkable and queer in itself. So yeah, I'm gonna give it like a like a good eight out of ten, and you know, stomping on flags because unbridled blind patriotism is dumb, and if a flag is deserving to be stomped on for shitty behavior, then gonna do it. I like yeah. that. That's awesome. I guess I'm gonna give him a nine point five. Okay. Nice. I have a nine point five. Uh. I don't know, man. I don't have a cool, like, <laughs> addition to it. But uh, the reason I gave him such a high score is because boys, boys, boys. Not <laughs> only was there Seth and Tenet, but there's just, there's the uh, inferences with David Cuthbert Thomas and the inferences with Owen and the, and the relationships we know he had with Ivor Novello. And, like, I just feel like he didn't have, he wasn't shy about his love of men. Mm. And uh, <laughs> to also, and not that this is a fair comparison because I myself hate this when like people approach by folks and say like, well, how many relationships do you have with women? How many do you have with men? And if it's not like an equal number, then like somehow your bisexuality is invalidated. Uh, yeah. But I feel like, I feel like it's telling that he only had one serious relationship with a woman and several relationships with men. He had the opportunity in his life to date and fraternize with and romance women. And he didn't do mm. that. So... For whatever reason, you know, the string of male relationships and the one and it also it's the it's the time in his life that he had that relationship. Right. It's not like he dated, you know, mostly women in his youth and then only had like one or it was like reverse it's he had the opportunity to date women while he was young and didn't. Mm -hmm. And then when he was older it was like, Okay, I'm gonna seek this out. Now. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> so to me it was like, Yeah, yeah, I, I think he's pretty gay. There you go. <laughs> All right. There we go. Yeah, I'd say like, you know, hopefully, you know, I, I just I I would like posthumously wish for him peace in it, you know, like something so that it didn't like cause him so much turmoil. I wish he could be around uh, today to kind of see how things are. It's it's totally different. Yeah. Well, you know, we're I still think. still blowing people up horribly in war. But oh yeah, I don't know that he'd be yeah, happy. Yeah, but with I that, think but. just the <laughs> some of the attitudes toward queerness. Uh, yeah, I I think living in a society now. Okay, here's the thing. I I agree with you. I don't like to give us too much credit to, especially like because I don't want to borderline on the like we like hello same sex marriage is a thing. So like everything is fine <laughs> now in great. queerland. Everything we have equality. It's fine. There's no problems. No, like that's obviously not true. 
But um, living in a world where we can discuss openly the concept of gender non-binary and where I can educate like my siblings on that mm. term and like talk to them about it at sushi and it's like nobody is is afraid of being beaten up because of it is really nice. I know in some places that still happens and we, we're dealing with hate crimes everywhere, but like, and we just dealt with Pulse and a bunch of other stuff, but I just feel like the fact that we're having those conversations, we've progressed that far. Like, let's give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back right. for that, you know? Cause there was the time where Sassoon lived where you couldn't even talk right. about it. And like, now we can talk about it and like, that's yeah, huge. Absolutely. So yeah, uh, with that, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much, Hayden, for sitting and, and hanging out and talking with me and being my being my person on the other side of the screen who is very different for once. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. We just gotta get we gotta get um, you some like blue hair dye and you can sub in for Gretchen yeah. next. Yeah, just <laughs> anytime i will the whole thing i'm guys you can't i have like a buzz cut but i will die blue <laughs> there <you go. laughs> i'll do my beard whatever <laughs> there we go gretchen watch out i'm coming for your job no i'm just kidding <laughs> uh, well thank you so much for being on um would you would you like to tell the listeners uh where they can find you and your writing online sure i didn't do a good job of this in the beginning guys i'm a writer uh you mentioned the beginning writer poet activist i tried to write stuff about queer life and my life as a child of West Indian immigrants. Um, so you can find my stuff on my blog mostly sealedinink.com. It's sealed S-E-A-L-E-D-I-N-I-N-K.com. Um, and then if you want, if you're brave enough, you can follow me on Instagram. It's after the waves. It's all one word. Uh, it's kind of a joke because I live in SoCal, but I don't surf. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's you, look, wear flip flops and board shorts around. Nobody knows the difference. Yeah, uh, I do the whole look. I just don't get in the water, <laughs> other than like you know, prancing around for a little bit, getting a little wet, and then jumping. There you out. go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as always, I'm Lee. And when I'm uh, not nerding out about super gay love poetry from the First World War, I'm usually talking about comics, queer TV, and politics over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter. And getting really excited because I get to move and do a whole bunch of fun stuff uh, coming up. I'm moving into a new apartment and I'm real excited. So I'll be packing in the next two Ooh. weeks until the next episode, y'all. Um, so, yeah. Congrats on that. I know that yeah. life. That's going to be my life, Oh, too. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, you're relocating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast. Twitter at History is Gay Pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just say hi at historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you enjoy the show and want to continue to support us in, if you want to support us in continuing to make it, you can join us on our Patreon page where you can get access to a bunch of really, really cool things. We post behind the scenes stuff. We do Sappho Salon mini episodes where we read you gay love poetry and, and letters and a whole bunch of different fun things. We give you special sneak peeks. You can have the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show from letters and query episodes and more. You can also get discounts in our store, which is really fun, especially since we have some cool new merch. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our awesome Patreon community along with the amazing Charles S., 
Rhea Jasmine, Katie Barker, and Clara Casali. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this without you. It makes me really, really excited every time we uh, record an episode and we have more names to read at the end. You guys are all amazing. So we are so uh, blessed to have this really wonderful, lovely community of people who are supporting this work. And you can also support this work by buying us some merch. So like I mentioned, click on shop at our website. Go get yourself some fun stuff. Become a patron so you can get discounts. Yay! At the, uh, I believe, $5 or more level, you get a 10% discount. $25 or more, you get a 20% discount. And that's on all the stuff, guys. And who knows? There might be holiday sales coming up. Maybe more things will happen. Who knows? Get stuff for your gay yes, relatives. There you go. uh or punk your trump relatives with queer shit um (laughs) even more fun yeah i'm doing that i'm gonna do that do it please (laughs) um so you can also rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts that in itself really helps more people find the show and we can continue to expand this awesome community that's it for history is gay until next time stay queer and stay curious (laughs) 